Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am excited to be introducing a new series, What's Missing in Clinical Practice Today. And the guest of this series is none other than Michael Trout. Many of you are aware of the work of Michael Trout and what an important person he has been in my life. But I do want to share with some of our listeners who may be less familiar with Michael's work a bit about him. Michael Trout um, graduated from Alma College with a degree in philosophy and Central Michigan University with a degree in psychology. He then did specialized training at the Child Development Project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry with Professor Selma Freiberg. Many of you are familiar with that renowned person, Professor Selma Freiberg, and he began working in the field of mental health in 1968 in a variety of settings. He worked in inpatient facilities. He worked in people's homes. He did many home visits. He opened his private practice in 1979 and then he founded in 1986 the infant parent institute which is an institute that has engaged in research clinical practice and clinical training related specifically to problems of attachment which is why he is such a perfect fit for the attachment theory in action podcast. Michael has done so many things over the years. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and International Associations for Infant Mental Health. He was the charter, uh, a charter member of the editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal. He's served um, as regional vice president of the United States World Association for Infant Mental Health and served as the board of directors for the the Association for Pre and Perinatal Psychology and Health. And in 1984, among the numerous awards that he has been given, he won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to the needs of infants and their families. I could go on and on about Michael and everyone who's ever been around me when his name comes up knows that I do go on and on about him. But he's also published uh, many book chapters. Um, He wrote a final book, uh, an overview of many experiences he had in his clinical practice, and that is called Four Decades in Infant Mental Health. I would strongly encourage you to look into purchasing that book if you have not already. He also wrote another book, uh, co-authored it with Lori Thomas called The Jonathan Letters, and perhaps Michael is best known for the incredible series of videotapes that he has created, particularly the transition series 
Some of you may have seen um, some of the videos that are part of that series. If you haven't, again, I encourage you to look into them. They are available through Chaddock. So for over 46 years, Michael has done this work with parents and their babies and individual adults as well. And he is going to share some of his insights with us in this series. So I look forward to bringing this to all of you and we will be coming right up. The Knowledge Center at Chaddock is a tremendous resource for therapists, educators, business and organizational leaders, and anyone curious about trauma-informed care. At tkcchaddock.org, you'll find information about registering for our professional development courses like the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, Adult Attachment Interview Workshops, or the Nonprofit Leadership Academy. You'll also find a library of Chaddock publications in the TKC store, including the entire Michael Trout book and video collection. Visit tkcchaddock.org for videos, articles, workshops, and podcasts in the arena of attachment and trauma-informed care. So hello, Michael. Thank you for continuing this conversation with me about what's missing from clinical practice today. Glad to be back. We spoke together last time about presence and holding, and I did find myself thinking, wow, we could still keep going on that topic. But I do want to move on to following and mentalizing. Mm -hmm. And I think first, if you could just share with our listeners what what you even mean with those words i mean what one is is a, a more common word following mentalizing i think lots of people think they know what it means um but tell us what it means to you and what you think is important for us to know about those words it might surprise listeners to know that i think of following in a very um scientific way I, I would ask people to even imagine as a scientist in the lab enters the lab to do microscope work today, what is he prepared to do, first of all? What are going to be his behaviors? And then what is the activity of collecting data? And I think that's what following is. When he sticks his eye or she sticks her eye into that microscope, onto that microscope, she is trying to see what's there. She doesn't know what's there, by the way, which gets us back to the thing we talked about last time about whether we have an agenda or not. She doesn't know what's there by definition. She's open to what's there. But most importantly, she's going to follow whatever is there. She's going to be amazed and awed and interested and curious. But most importantly, she's going to collect it all. It's all going to become part of, now I'm slipping over to clinical work, the file, the mental file that you have as a therapist. You've just followed the data, and now you know more than you used to know. So at a home visit or in your office, you walk into the room or meet the folks in the waiting room, and your first order of business is, of course, presence, we talked about last time, and maybe even beginning the process of holding. But while doing that, you're following. You're looking at every nuance of movement and gesture and interaction from the big ones, like the classic in our 
for those of us who work a lot with foster children like you and I do, does the child jump off the uh, foster mother's lap and run up into your arms? A huge behavior and a gigantic red flag for us to the tiny things. What does what does the mom or the dad do when the child gets down off their lap to come into the office? What do they not only what do they say, but how do they carry their bodies? Where are the sighs? Where are the slumps on the couch? Um, where do they take the the um, agenda for the day? They do they announce right off what they want to. Uh, get our opinion on or what the, how they want us to straighten out the child or whatever. Um, we follow every nuance and collect it all as data, just like we're looking through a microscope. We don't react to it. We don't even respond to it too quickly. We take it in. We wonder about it. We're curious about it. Um, we wonder what it means for this particular mom or dad or child. Uh, and then we just keep doing our work of following. And herein lies one of the reasons why strategy-based manualized interventions uh, have so much trouble. It's very hard to manualize following. Mm. It means mm -hmm. simply being intelligently stupid it means being empty-minded it means being ready to see whatever is to be seen and to see all of it not filter out as even the best of us i'm afraid to admit do filter out that which we can't understand so we just don't see it we see it all and we gather and collect it all and hold it in our hands for a while until we can figure out what it might mean and how we might incorporate it into the work with this particular family. That's following. So I'm going back to your example of a scientist or a doctor looking at a slide, and they're not saying, we have no idea what the, what the problem is here, but we are only going to look for two things. Mm -hmm. Right? They're not going <laughs> to Yes. There wouldn't be a lot of very exciting scientific discoveries if we decided we're just going to look for two things or even three things or even the things we already know oh i'll drive it even further into embarrassment if you did that you would miss the other things which could be the things that will kill the patient or mm -hmm. will be the future of of science in some new area that you never even thought about mm -hmm. wouldn't that be embarrassing mm -hmm. and i think we we do things just as embarrassing with our patients, we miss some of the biggies. An example would be, I was I was a ways along in a session with a mom with her wriggling baby on her lap before I ever knew that there was another child in the other room, for crying out loud, who was really why I was there, and I didn't know that. The referral had been about this mom and this baby that's on her lap. I didn't even know there was another child, much less that the other child is really at the heart of why this family is coming apart. Similarly, I might be sitting with a mom and a, and a child and not know for quite a while 
that the father of that child or a boyfriend who's not the father of the child was sitting in the next room listening to everything we were saying and the mother was modifying her speech in accord with knowing that she was being, so to speak, watched, listened to. Wouldn't those be embarrassing bits of data to not know because we didn't follow carefully enough to pick up on clues? I'm thinking of a child that I worked with that would come bounding down the sidewalk and like bust into my office every time, like run ahead of the parent, they come up, they get out of the car, the child runs ahead of the parent and really like almost explodes through the door every time. And then the adoptive parent is always a couple steps behind. So to speak. <laughs> Brilliantly put, Karen. Always a couple of steps behind, yes. And so somebody could look at that and say, well, the child has ADHD. Maybe they need a medication adjustment. Or or they could look at it in a lot of other ways, one of which you just mentioned. Um, it's almost, I, I felt like it's almost though she feels like you need to know I'm here. Here I am. Which also could have a lot of meaning also too. And what if that turned out to be the very heart of the case? Those simple words you just spoke. I need you to know I'm here. Especially since another baby was adopted right after me when I was still a baby. We have to slow down though. We have to, to really notice this carefully. You have to slow down inside of yourself. Michael, I feel like this speaks to what we talked about last time, not having an agenda. Because if you have an agenda, you hold that in you and there's not the freedom to watch everything that's happening in front of you, right? Because you're kind of wanting to get it back on track here. Well, even more importantly, your agenda becomes the thing you follow. Right. So that's your guide dog in the yes. session, the agenda. Yes. Which may con uh, include a mental picture of your supervisor looking over your shoulder, uh, making sure that you stick to the agenda. That's what you're following. What a silly thing to follow when there are patients there waiting for you to follow them, for goodness sakes. Yes. A child who's never been seen who would love it, love it if you could somehow see them, which you can only do by following them and wondering things like you just did. I wonder if he needs really to be seen. Mm -hmm. So following, what about mentalizing? <clears throat> well, this is a tough one. Um, not only is it difficult to do, it's controversial. I find a surprising number of clinicians uh, who believe that that's really not their job either to do or to help parents learn to do with the child. And yet I find it absolutely central. It doesn't mean anything very complicated, really. 
it really only arises out of wondering um, and following. It is that which you uh, discover or think you discover. That's a very important distinction, by the way, I just made. We we never discover. Again, the 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 doctor looking through the microscope hasn't discovered anything when he looks at the data. He just takes the data, and maybe he, he muses on the possibility of discovery. And similarly, when we think we see something in the child, we haven't discovered anything yet necessarily, but we've collected the data that maybe gives us an idea what could be in the child's mind. What might be the child's way of looking at the world? What might even be the child's story about his place in the world, what he amounts to, which means his story, therefore, about how likely it is that he will ever make it with this adoptive or foster family, for example. And similarly, with the parents who deserve, by the way, our mentalizing attention as much as the child does, um, it means merely collecting whatever bits of data we can along the way, because we've been good at following, to construct temporary, put possible, how many more words can I use to say we go slow here? Hypotheses. I was going to ask about that word that was in my mind. About what could be in the child, in the parent's mind, not what's on their mind, but what's in their mind. Where do they come from? A hypothesis that's always ready for revision. Absolutely. Right. We're always ready to even be completely disproved. And by the way, be full of joy about being disproved. What could be better in a scientific experiment than being shown to be wrong? Because that means new possibilities, therefore, are open. If we were wrong about this, there must be something else. Hmm. So if dad is described as violent, and that's what we have in our mind about him, we've stopped mentalizing him. If he's described as violent and we follow, we're curious, we wonder about him, then we might come up with a new theory of mind about him. Who is this guy that's so threatening to me? And, and that the, the child welfare workers say, look out for him, he's a tough one, or he's violent, or he's got a history of violence. It doesn't mean much to us if we're eager to mentalize him. That's not the same, by the way, as the old catchphrase about psychoanalyzing anybody. That's not what this is about at all. It's just being respectfully curious about why he acts this way, why he's got so much brouhaha on him, why, he's, why he makes remarks about your car or your dress or your size or things he's done to people like you in the past, and so on. What a wonderful thing to be curious about, because it gives us an avenue in to a guy that I'll bet hardly anyone has bothered to look inside of before. He's got too much hoo-ha on the outside of him. Nobody looks inside. They just react to the, the tough guy stuff. Yeah. You're the one who mentalizes the tough guy. You open this segment about mentalization by saying a lot of clinicians don't agree, think this isn't important. 
tell me about that. What, what, what kind of comments would they make in response to this idea? Well, I, I should say that I think a lot of the resistance on the part of clinicians comes simply because it's so hard, or mm -hmm. at least it's perceived to be so hard. Uh, they, so they may even say, that's not what I'm there for, and then follow that with the most amazing sequelae sentence, I'm there to do an intervention, <laughs> as if somehow you could do an intervention without mentalizing. Mm -hmm. What they really, I think, what I really mean when they say that's not what I'm there for is, if that's what I'm there for, boy, I'm in hot water because it's too hard. I don't know how to do that. Which, by the way, is not true that you don't know how to do it. Because I just said, this is not a complicated thing. It just means slowing way down, focusing on connection and doing it by way of following, and then pretty soon you find yourself really interested. How, how does this person work? Why did they just say that? Why is there so much resistance here? Shall I just say they're resistant, or shall I say, well, that's really interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. so resistant. I wonder where that comes from. wonder why to be resistant to these ideas that we've been talking about today has paid off for them, or why to get too soft today, which may be the terror of some children or some parents, why getting too soft today is perceived as so dangerous. Now, that's, that's the wonderful area of mentalizing, and it wasn't even hard. All it required is that you slow down, Focus on the most important thing, which is connection, and then just follow. And pretty soon you're there. You don't even you don't even know what the route was that got you there. But yet our topic is our overall topic is what's missing from clinical practice. So you're identifying it may not be hard, but it's absent in a lot of cases. It absolutely is. And we're just, we're working with one and a half arms tied behind our back. If we try to do any kind of, even child welfare work, I think, much less psychotherapy with children and their parents without mentalizing. It's just almost silly to hamstring ourselves that much that we would cut off our curiosity about what makes the other person think and feel and speak the way they do. I'm thinking about the following and the mentalizing, and you have done such a good job of illustrating them and explaining them, and then yet we forget or we get caught up in what we think should be happening or we have a moment of confusion i was i have this this book it's um listeners can't see i'm holding up this little uh golden book and i <clears throat> write important things i've learned from people in it and of course there's many things that i've learned from you michael but one of them was this idea that you have to be able to tolerate even embrace confusion 
to even glorify. If you, you are, if your listeners will excuse me being maybe too dramatic, I think glorify confusion. Because back to the lab again, that moment of confusion when you look through the microscope and you don't know what you're seeing. Holy smoke, there's stuff in here I wouldn't have predicted. This isn't turning out at all the way I expected. There's stuff on that film, on that slide. I, how did it get there? That's a glorious scientific moment. It means you're about to learn something new. But learning something new always is preceded by lack of knowledge, if not outright confusion. It's a glorious moment. All we have to do as clinicians is just learn to sit with it, for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. Not be so angry or impatient with ourselves when we don't catch, we don't catch on. We're not, we're not in control. But in a way, it's an illusion that we're in control anyway. I remember this moment, and I have it on video. It was one of the, I think it was the first time I ever said this to a parent. The parent said to me, well, what do you think we should do about that? Just mm -hmm. specific behavior. And I said, I don't know, at least not yet. And I just remember this kind of silence and it was just hanging there. It was the truth. If I had, sure, I can, I can come up with an intervention for that behavior with like the best of them, you know, but I just didn't feel like I knew enough to really understand where this was coming from. And I remember it was sort of a, for me, kind of a watershed moment to say, I think that's why I had to throw on that tail end, at least not yet. Like, don't worry, I'll eventually be smart. <laughs> Let me get back to you. I'll have an answer for you next week. <laughs> but uh, I said, I just don't know. By the way, I'd ask our listeners to um, follow that up a little bit. I don't know. Then what happens next? Silence, you said in this session, you remember. But other possibilities might be that the parent would say, well, then what good are you? Or then why should I listen to you if you don't know? Or if you don't know, then what am I going to do? Or any such thing as that. And now we're off to the races. Isn't that wonderful? You've said, I don't know. And they've said, well, then what good are you? And now we've got a topic. Well, indeed. What good am I? What good have other people been who have waltzed into your life or even that you've invited into your life who wanted to tell you what to do or who thought they had the answers? Uh, what good have they been to you? Um, maybe they were a lot of good. Maybe you really did learn something from, from or with some of them. Or maybe they insulted you. But now we've got a wonderful topic. We may even get into, without ever using words, um, our roles in this intervention um, dance that we're doing. Did, did you think maybe, or did you hope maybe that our roles would be, you would have questions and I would have answers? Or did you think maybe our roles would be that you would have answers and prove me to be an idiot? Or, hmm, what, 
what did you think our roles would be? My point merely is that your statement, I don't know, is not an ending statement. It's an opening statement. Yes. And it was silent for a moment. And it was, I sensed disappointment mm-hmm. from the parent. And then she, I think at that point, I had enough of her trust that she sort of regrouped. Mm-hmm. Like initial disappointment, but okay, like we'll, we'll, we'll keep moving along here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's interesting that you use that phrase there about your history with her. I guess that would be a key variable, wouldn't it? If you say, I don't know to a patient either that you've just met or that you've just met in the sense that you've been working with them for a long time, but you have never connected, then in fact, that is an ending statement. I don't know becomes a closing thing mm-hmm. uh, because they, they don't have any reason to believe you know something else. They don't have any reason to believe that you can be trusted. They don't feel held by you. But if you've worked on connection before, and now you say, I don't know, that can, that becomes an opening statement. You've got enough, they feel held enough, you've got enough connection that you can use that as a launching pad to get into more important things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, always a fascinating discussion. So interesting to talk about these things and gain understanding and awareness. So, so maybe they're not missing from our clinical practice because we're trying to put them forefront in our minds and understand them. So thank you again, as always so much for sharing your experience and wisdom with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.